Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Happy New Year, everyone. Long-time listeners will know I don't normally do a January episode since the Christmas special is followed by the rush of Christmas. I don't like to leave all my lovely listeners too long, though, so I'm doing a mini-sode today. Before we start, I had a lovely four-star listener review from Emperor Charlemagne in the USA. Quote, overall, a great podcast, just a bit long-winded. This is a great podcast, and the creator combines both excellent narration and very insightful information. I especially like how he constantly puts everything into the context of how people of the era thought, with a relatively unbiased view. My only complaint is that he tends to spend way more time than he needs to on some details and subjects, mostly art and literature, that just don't seem to really add anything to the narrative. With some work, he could be on the level of Dan Carlin or Mike Duncan, end quote. Well, thank you. I don't think anyone will be on Mike's level from his History of Rome days. That was lightning in a bottle. I've had a real think about this feedback. I carefully consider everything listeners say to me. I do admit I dive into art and literature a lot. I do it because these are the things that really make us human. The ability to dream reality as we wish it, rather than just as it is. The way we write, the way we create and present art, tell us a lot about how we want to view the world and how we shape it ourselves according to our perceptions. We are very much the language we use. Art touches the soul, and one of my favourite things about the podcast is that I hope to bring a little bit of culture into people's lives as they listen in ways that showcase things they might not have always stumbled across otherwise. The art is a reflection of humanity and human thought, both today and throughout history. Finally, I'm heavily influenced by that old BBC long format style, where obscure subjects were talked about at length without flash, just letting the topic breathe. Speaking of topics, it's always hard to choose one for minisodes. There are so many fascinating things and events that don't fit in the main narrative, but are too good to miss. I was very tempted with a quick chat about the invention of the saxophone in the 1840s. Yes, it really is that old. It wasn't invented in the 1970s. There was so much going on in the 1840s. Hans Christian Andersen wrote The Snow Queen and The Ugly Duckling. Edgar Allan Poe wrote The Raven. Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol. Alexandre Dumas wrote The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo. The year of revolutions broke out in the late 1840s. Texas, Iowa and Florida became US states. The Oregon Trail opened. The Gold Rush and the Potato Famine both changed migration patterns across Europe and the USA. Political chaos rocked France and Spain. The great Sikh kingdom reached the height of its powers in India after its invasion of Tibet with its mighty Khalsa army becoming the strongest, most modern army outside Europe. The world's first stamps, Christmas cards, 
safety matches, kerosene, vulcanization, and telegrams were invented. Oh, and we've already mentioned Lovelace and Babbage, and photography too. As you can see, the podcast has more than enough to cover for another five years before we leave the 1840s. Today, we are going to look at a vital topic, inspired curious little item. On my desk is a real Victorian penny. It is old and worn, much like the image of Victoria herself on this particular coin. I decided to see what links money had to the 1840s. In 1848, the Royal Mint produced the Florin coin. It was worth two shillings. I know that's really exciting for all of you to hear. I bet you are opening your coin purses and eagerly digging round for one right now. No? Oh, yes, of course, because we have mercifully switched over to decimal money in the UK in 1971. Thank God. If we could get rid of the rest of the imperial measure hangovers, I'd be a happy man and finally living in a semi-modern country. Still, since no one under 50 listening to this podcast has any idea pre-decimal currency in general was like and what it was like in the Victorian era. This seems like an ideal time to cover it. Let's dive into the world of Victorian money. My plan at the moment is to give you this mini-sode on Victorian money, a full episode on Darwin in February, then another mini-sode on money and wealth, then a recap episode, then on to the next big topic. For reasons not entirely clear to me, finance isn't taught to anyone at school in depth and people think it is very complicated. That's bad because it is fundamental to modern world culture. Don't worry, these minisodes will cover things like currency, income, wealth, liquidity, assets, loans, credit and things like that. Victorian money was complicated and had some historical quirks. The currency was divided into pounds, shillings and pence. You all know what the pound symbol looks like. Shillings were denoted by an S from the Latin solidus numus, meaning solid coin, and pence by the letter D from denarius, Latin for counting ten, a small silver Roman coin. The lowest denominations of UK coins were made from copper. This was soft and led to all kinds of problems. Merchants would deface the soft metal with stamps, advertising, or adding amusing pipes and hats to Queen Victoria's image. An unamused royal male switched from copper to bronze coins in 1860. Despite that, we still use the phrase counting the coppers to mean dealing with small change or trying to scrimp and save to get by. Funny how language clings on to the past, and the past clings on through money and language. In the increasingly unlikely event you have a one-pence piece in your pocket today, it is made from steel, with copper plating, meaning they are magnetic. Before 1971, British currency was not decimalised. It was the usual illogical system the British loved to cling on to, and add to, without the tendency to rational reform that was all the rage on the continent during the Enlightenment. After all, 
if the French were all for standardising reforms, that was absolutely going to guarantee the British would not be going down that road. We didn't beat Napoleon single-handedly at cricket at Waterloo just to be told to use a currency that was divisible by ten. Deep breath, then. The Victorian currency had in descending order of value gold, quintuple sovereigns, or five-pound coins, exclusive to 1887. There are less than ten known in existence today. Gold double sovereign coins, or two-pound coins. Gold sovereigns, also called the pound, or pound coins. Gold half-sovereigns, silver crowns. Silver double florins. Silver half-crowns. Silver florins, also known as two silver pieces. Silver shillings. Silver sixpence. A silver fourpence piece, also known as a groat. A silver threepence, also pronounced threepence or threepenny bit, copper or bronze two-peats, copper or bronze half-penny, also known as a halfpenny, a silver penny half-penny, for use only in Jamaica and Ceylon, a farthing and fractional farthing. There was, of course, also minted currency out in the colonies on a fairly scrappy and ad hoc basis. To give an example of just how irrational the system was, the groat was reintroduced into British currency to reduce the amount of change needed on a London bus since tickets were four pennies. The alternative version of this story is that London cabbies wanted four pence frequently and, if given a sixpence, would keep the change. So having a four penny piece meant that the gentleman in question no longer had to tip. Yep, basing the currency circulation on a ticket price. Don't get too comfortable yet. Remember, those coins don't relate to each other in units of tens. We now need to link them. We will forget about the quintuple and double sovereigns, as they were extremely rare. The currency was broken up into 240 parts, going from halves, thirds, quarters, fifths, sixths, eighths, tenths, twelfths, fifteenths, and on down through the madness till you reach the 120th divisions. One pound sovereign was made of 20 shillings. One shilling was made of 12 pennies. Quick, you at the back. How many pennies made a pound? This is not a very difficult question, is it, boy? As my old maths master used to say, as he affectionately brought his bamboo cane down on the desk to focus attention. That's right, 240 pennies in the pound. That was the core part of the main currency. One pound and 20 shillings. One shilling had 12 pennies and one penny had four farthings. Therefore, we get 960 farthings to one pound. A penny was worth two half pennies and four farthings. The famous guinea was worth 21 shillings, so just over a pound. A crown was worth five shillings, whilst a half crown was worth two shillings sixpence. The famous guinea was not actually in circulation in the Victorian era. It was withdrawn in 1816, but retained as a term of use at a value of one pound and one shilling. Yep, this is all a system you would never come up with 
if you sat down to make it up from scratch. Don't worry, there was plenty of contemporary criticism of Victorian coins. The clergy were enraged by the 1848 florin, which was an attempt at the start of decimalisation. They were enraged not because of the decimalisation itself, but because the coin said Victoria Regina, Victoria reigns, rather than Victoria de Gracia Regina Victoria, which means Victoria by grace of God, Queen. Hence, it was known as the godless florin. Nobody really liked the double florin coin because it was badly designed, not a convenient number, and the wrong size. It was such a flop that the Royal Mint offered to take it back at face value. Needless to say, that makes it rare and collectible today, which makes it especially ironic that it was never officially withdrawn from use or demonetized, as the official term goes. It is therefore still legal tender with a face value of 20p, if you can find enough of them, offer to pay your council tax with them and enjoy the hilarious Victorian-style hijinks. Point out that it is still legal tender and technically would be worth hundreds of pounds more than O. It's the kind of hilarity that you have over a game of Snapdragon. The shilling was also known as a bob, so a florin was known as a two-bob bit. The shilling was incredibly common, but if you are lucky enough to have kept good quality silver one your granny gave you, dating from 1866, then it might be worth around £250 today. The silver double florin was worth four shillings and only issued for four years, since it was badly made and easily mistaken by barmaids as a higher value coin, leading to them being stiffed for a bill. The sixpence of nursery rhyme fame was silver and snapped in half easily. It was popular as a lover's token, with each lover keeping half the coin. This easy breaking gave it the nickname a bender. The coins changed a lot over the reign. The silver crown was an extremely popular coin. Victoria had four designs issued throughout her reign. The first was the young head, issued from 1839 to 1844, then the magnificent Gothic style, issued in 1847 and 1853. The portrait of the Queen on this is absolutely striking and incredibly detailed. It is one of the finest pieces of coin artistry for any everyday circulation piece, and I would adore having one in my collection. According to the Britannia Coin Company, an 1847 Victoria Gothic crown, unidecimo, extremely fine, is, quote, a very collectible silver coin, crown of Queen Victoria, dated 1847. Known as the Gothic crown, this renowned issue gets its name from the Gothic revival details of the design. These include black letter style legends, Victoria's medieval hairstyle, garb and crown. The obverse portrait, designed and engraved by Royal Mint Chief Engraver William One, is ornate and flattering. Quote. It is now worth over £4,000. Honestly, 
I'd be happy with finding a good replica, because it is a piece of real Victorian art. Queen V, in the medieval style she loved. Then came the Golden Jubilee Crown in 1887, and finally the Old Widow Crown of 1892 issue. It might seem obvious then, the younger Victoria was on the coin, the older the coin itself must be, right? Sorry, coins don't work that way. The Melbourne Mint in Australia issued a brand new gold sovereign pound coin in 1872, but they used the young head style from 1839. Dating coins can be especially tricky, especially as they wear away and lose detail. Of course, for most Victorian people, carrying round a pound was an unheard of event. It had the rough purchasing power of £100 today. That was not the kind of thing people used daily. Besides, calculating the rough purchasing power doesn't tell us much. As Adam Smith said, quote, The real price of everything, what every thing really costs to the man who wants to acquire it, is the toil and trouble of acquiring it. But though labour be the real measure of the exchangeable value of all commodities, it is not that by which their value is commonly estimated. Every commodity besides is more frequently exchanged for and thereby compared with other commodities than with labour. Money can approximate worth, but it is only a rough substitute for labour. The labour to create a loaf of bread today is much, much less than in the past. It is why your bread gets relatively cheaper, but your rent and mortgage skyrocket. You need to know the relative worth of the currency at the time, not just the inflation-adjusted amount today. Think of it this way. A knitting needle and ball of yarn today is very cheap, and it is not very valuable or very useful, compared to that same knitting needle and yarn in 1350. It was much harder to produce, harder to obtain, and cost relatively more, even when you adjust the currency. It's the same with money. Victorian food was relatively expensive, as was buying land, but employing servants, reasonably cheap. Overall, labour was much cheaper, whilst finished craft goods were pricey, and land was really expensive. Today, employing servants is the preserve of only the very wealthy, whilst food is modestly cheap, even if it is currently rising. The worth of a coin varied over time, depending on inflation or where you were. Silver coins might be common in England, but were worth a lot more on the borders of empire, where they were rare. It seems unlikely that I'll get my 1847 gothic crown, as I don't have £4,000 to spare. Luckily, Amazon has me covered. A company is offering a brass replica with silver coating. It is rather good. Not totally convincing, but pretty damn close. That is, of course, fine, as they are making a replica of a historic coin and telling you it is a replica. What if it didn't? Ah, yes. The ancient and ignoble art coin forgery, which was a huge, huge problem for Victorians, and one we will pick up on in detail later. Even if you were dealing 
were genuine coins, your mental arithmetic had to be very good to avoid being shortchanged or otherwise mercilessly cheated by the huge range of people in Victorian Britain who desperately wanted to separate you from your cash by fair means or foul. I say cash, but that's not the whole picture. We will also talk about bankers' drafts, promissory notes, lines of credit, bills of exchange, and the tick. Above all, though, the worst fate in Victorian Britain was bankruptcy. A sign you had fallen into dishonour, immorality, you had disgraced your family, your God, and your community. Nothing left but ruin and the workhouse would await, for possibly becoming an MP, like many a con artist and chancer before you, especially if you had run a railway pyramid scheme. Commentators were anxious to castigate people for making money or society for coveting it. Friedrich Engels was scathing, for instance. Quote, the middle classes in England have become the slaves of money they worship, says Friedrich Engels. In 1845, for instance, they really believe that all human beings, and indeed all living things and inanimate objects, have a real existence only if they make money or help to make it. Their sole happiness is derived from gaining a quick profit. They feel pain only if they suffer a financial loss. End quote. That's some self-appointed high ground, all right. The UK in the 1840s was a decade of immense poverty, inequality and economic change. Whilst the potato blight and subsequent potato famine were felt hardest in Ireland, the rest of the UK and Europe all suffered. The 1840s were called the Hungry Forties for a reason. Naturally, the richer you were, the less likely you were to starve to death or be thrown into the street. Since the welfare state was very dependent on those infamous prisons and workhouses or random acts of charity, you can understand that outside the world of the super-rich or angry German writers, money was a vital consideration. People can say money isn't really important, but it is like air. It isn't important until you miss it. Still, the key problems in Victorian Britain around money were about more than just the absolutely vast inequalities. Victorian money was heavy. It was hard to move around, hard to count in bulk, hard to store, and liquidity for investment or even day-to-day trading was limited. The age of sound money and the gold standard was one of practical inconvenience. Even the fabulous loot of empire could be a burden. Soldiers looting the summer palace in China were so overburdened with loot that boots, pockets and helmets were filmed beyond bursting and priceless items were burned in the general conflagration whilst the overloaded looters physically couldn't carry any more. Even today, some of the loot is worth an immense amount. As a 2018 article in the art newspaper states, quote, The Tiger Ying, an archaic bronze water vessel taken by a British soldier from the old Summer Palace in 1860, was sold in the UK yesterday 
for £410,000 to an anonymous buyer. Its sale at the Canterbury Auction Galleries proceeded in the face of outcry in China, including calls by its State Administration of Cultural Heritage and the China Association of Auctioneers to boycott the sale. The vessel, which dates to the Western Zhao from 1027 to 771 BC period, was rediscovered only last month in the attic of a bungalow in a seaside town in Kent by the dealer Alistair Gibson, the auction house's consultant in Chinese art, along with three other late Qing dynasty bronzes. They had been brought back from the Summer Palace by Royal Marines Captain Henry Lewis Evans, who was present when the Emperor's Summer Palace in Peking was looted by British and French forces in 1860 during the Second Opium War. Initially estimated at 120 to 200,000 pounds, the Tiger Ying is one of seven such vessels known to be in existence, of which five are in museums. End quote. Honestly, who knows how many priceless antiques were shoved into the pocket and backpacks of a few squaddies from Manchester, then sold for a few shillings days later to spend on booze and prostitutes. French General Montauban said he saw, quote, treasures of the most dazzling antiquiness, monstrous heaps of Nanjing porcelain, old Clouson enamels, rare red lacquer boxes from Beijing, thousand kinds of jade sculpture, lace, ivory, agate, coral, sandalwood carvings, bronzes from Canton, pearls the size of hazelnuts, end quote. French soldier Armand Lucy was equally stunned by the Summer Palace. Quote, I was dumbfounded, stunned, bewildered by what I had seen, and suddenly a thousand and one nights seemed perfectly believable to me. End quote. There was a bitter dispute about how the looting started. There's an excellent article by Eric Ringmeyer called The Looting of Yuan Ming and the Translation of Chinese Art in Europe, where he says, quote, Exactly how the looting began is a point of bitter dispute between French and British sources. All agreed that the French general Montenban first toured the emperor's residence at 8 o'clock in the morning of October 7th, accompanied by a group of French and British officers. Swineho, a French-British infantry company, and some British dragoons. Montauban always maintained that nothing was removed before Grant and Elgin arrived around 11 o'clock, except by some Chinese brigands. But all other accounts contradict this. Dupin and Lucy claimed British officers began pocketing things, setting off a general frenzy among officers and soldiers alike, while Swineho accuses French officers of first grabbing watches and small valuables, with Montauban doing nothing to stop them. In either case, Swineho and Foucherie apparently obtained passes to revisit the interior, and then Montauban toured again with Elgin and Grant, so that both sides could select the most precious objects to send back to their sovereigns. Two commissions oversaw this dividing up of the choicest spoils that afternoon, after which the grounds were opened to all soldiers, resulting in random looting 
and often wild destruction. The British, following their trophy practices from colonial India, set up a system in which soldiers had to turn in their loot so the commissioners could auction it and divide the profits equally, with one-third going to officers and two-thirds to the soldiers, and with Indian units receiving reduced cuts. French officers let their soldiers loot freely, and Armand Lucy described soldiers with enormous sacks of goods, which they paid local peasants a few pennies to carry for them when the armies moved out on October 9th to besiege Beijing. An illustration of one such scene with a dubiously oversized Chinese man led on a leash by a soldier emphasises the physical scale of the operation and the local complicity needed to carry it off. All witnesses agreed that there was significant looting and destruction by Chinese, both those living nearby and others who were following the armies. End quote. Yet, the wealth of the imperial palace was beyond the carrying capacity of even the French and British armies. As a distraught Lucy noted in a letter to his father, quote, What a terrible scene of destruction presented itself. How disturbed now was the late quiescent state of the rooms, with their neat display of curiosities. Officers and men, English and French, were rushing about in a most unbecoming manner, each eager for the acquisition of valuables. Most of the Frenchmen were armed with large clubs, and what they could not carry away, they smashed to atoms. End quote. Of course, British and French generals were anxious to downplay the monetary value of the items selected for the British Empress Victoria and the French Emperor Napoleon III. Some of the finest artefacts were whisked off to royal collections. Items made their way to the strangest homes. The Wardrobe Museum in Salisbury Cathedral Close was originally a medieval bishop's robing residence. It is now the Rifles Berkshire and Wiltshire Museum. Inside is a display from the 99th Regiment of Foot, containing a yellow silk imperial robe. Objects like this are referred to as priceless. It's tricky. The regiment sold its Chinese loot from the Summer Palace for around £30,000, a staggering sum, which was distributed amongst officers and men. But now, today, the fabulous looted robe, worth a fortune in silk, made for an emperor, is behind a glass display case in a small regimental museum that, if we are painfully honest, few people know about or visit. So what is it really worth? Is it priceless, like the Mona Lisa? Or is it priceless because it is now just another piece of historical clothing in a museum? Is it part of the looted wealth of empire, upon which the modern wealth of Britain is built? Or is it just an old robe that most people will never see? That ancient bronze teapot I mentioned was lost in an attic. Is the British economy richer now that it has that silk robe? The burning and looting of the Summer Palace is heartbreaking and a crime against both China and history. There were centuries worth of Chinese philosophy, poetry, historical records and other irreplaceable scrolls. It was like losing the great library of Alexandria again and a sword through the heart of every historian. The looting by generals, soldiers 
and local working populations is a common occurrence throughout history when grand palaces fall. Barbaric as the looting was, it also followed the age-old rule of keeping your armies well rewarded. The scene would have been very familiar to a Roman general, a Muslim sultan or a Mongol Khan. Those soldiers of the regiment would have risked their blood and their lives in the Opium War. Whether they felt the war was justified or not, or even cared, like soldiers from the whole of history, you can be damn sure they wanted their potential sacrifice to be rewarded. No Roman legionnaire ever said, Oh, but this is a priceless historical artefact that represents the core of Gallic culture. We should not touch it. No, they said, Hail Caesar, grab it. Caesar brings us wine, women and wealth. As for the reasons why the palace itself was burned, and why it wasn't actually accurately called the Summer Palace, well, that will all have to wait till we get to the 1860s. At the rate we have been covering things in the podcast, I would think around six to seven years, probably more. Do you remember, though, that the Summer Palace was an imperial possession? The Chinese emperor was not using these riches to spend on universal education or to end the ongoing Chinese civil war at the time. This was the wealth of the rich, to be hoarded by the rich and stolen by the rich. I mention this since it's important to remember that wealth is only really worth the value someone else gives it and what it is used for. If I have all the gold on earth and lock it in the room, am I really rich? Or do people then just shrug and decide, okay, no point in valuing gold, let's find something else. Are the great treasures of the Tower of London, or the White House, or the Taj Mahal, or the Summer Palace really worth something? Or is it the idea that people have of them? Is wealth just a confidence trick? Is the country now rich just because the emperor and the aristocrats are rich? Or is it rich because the aristocracy uses those assets to take loans or to spend in the more mobile parts of the economy? Wealth in a vault is essentially worthless. Wealth is only really wealth when it is in motion or used for something. And this is a topic I intend to explore in more depth next time. But what about the average Victorian? One who never got to see even a printed picture of the loot of empire. What was money actually like for them? It was a mix of new and old. Coins are minted fresh, but slowly wear down through handling. The coins didn't wear at an even rate. So circulation was always a mix of older coins and newer minting. Coins from the previous reign remained in circulation, causing immense vexation to the Bank of England and many authorities. Older coins meant less control and more fraud. Victoria frequently had new coins minted, especially for jubilees. This helped ensure her subjects saw her, the Queen, and associated her with money and power. Victorian coinage was heavily based on gold, silver and copper, all very attractive to forgers. Gold is especially soft, easy to work. The copper coins were hated as they made a mess on fingers and smelt bad, so the switch to bronze coins was highly appreciated. Guineas were dropping out of circulation. So when you hear about people talking about guineas in the Victorian era, they're usually talking about an amount rather than actually getting golden guineas. 
It was therefore a coin of account only, and used to price horses, land, art, professional fees, and other luxury goods. A barrister took his fees in guineas, but his payment in pounds, shillings, and pence. Horse racing loves the term guinea, and now you know why. It was the gold coin of the gentry, saying you owed your tailor two guineas was so much classier rather than saying you owed Bob at the shop £2 four shillings. After much debate, the British government finally took action in 1890 to withdraw all pre-Victorian gold currency at a very generous face swap value. The cost was an eye-watering £400,000 in administration budgets, then at least 804000 needed for the actual exercise. There was estimated to be around £80 million of gold sovereigns in the United Kingdom in 1890. At today's money, that is a staggering figure of around £13 billion worth of gold in circulation. When you look at inflation over time and the buying power, £1 in 1890 had the buying power of around £164 today. That's gold in circulation and tells you Britain was rich. No government in the modern world would allow its citizens the political power of having that much gold in circulation today or the degree of freedom gold gives. In modern Britain, the value of the pound is not linked to gold and has plummeted. Coins are worth a face value and their material value. The face value should always exceed the value of the materials used to make them. So a government should be issuing a gold coin worth more than the actual gold used to make it. Otherwise, people will buy up the coins cheaply and melt them into more expensive gold. One example is the Royal Mint creating a gold coin that had a face value of £5,000 to enter in the competition called the Trial of Picks. This is an ancient British ceremony dating back to 1248 and is how the quality of a royal mint coin master sculpt is judged. Naturally, being an ancient British tradition, it is complex, overly ornate, extremely elitist and highly illogical. The actual gold purity needed to pass the competition meant that that £5,000 gold coin had gold in it worth £120,000. If that's too much for your pocket, you could spring for the Falcon of the Plantagenets 2019 UK one-ounce gold-proof coin, which is made of 999.9% pure gold, priced at £3,000, but with a face value of 100 The actual worth of that gold is about 1540 at current prices. Therefore, you'd make a technical loss of 1540-ish, but then would probably make a gain over a few years, unless the Royal Mint does something very stupid, like sell you that £100 coin for £100, in which case grab it with both hands and bask in your tidy profit. I'm mentioning this, A, because it's an interesting tidbit, but also a good reminder of how careful mints and governments have to be with coin supplies. The availability of gold and silver fluctuates over time, 
Historically, many rulers fail to appreciate that precious metal values can go down when supplies go up. Hence, when the Spanish flooded Europe with the silver and gold from the conquests and looting of South America, the market value of these metals actually began to go down over time. But the economics of the time wasn't sophisticated enough to fully appreciate it. Likewise, the value of a currency can suddenly decline, leaving the face value suddenly too low for the material value of the coin, good quality coins, and a commitment to sterling as the gold standard of empire, made the Victorian British currency a solid currency par excellence. Coins, especially gold ones, have a huge advantage. They are usually welcome everywhere. You might be a British trader, um, legitimately trading from Portsmouth, arriving in the West Indies with totally legitimate trade goods. For wholly unfortunate reasons, you can't sell them in the main market and need to deal with that nice Spanish captain. He doesn't speak English and is going to head to Florida with your totally legitimate goods. So you need an exchange. Notes are tricky. And who can translate on those weird customs forms anyway? A bag of gold sovereigns on the barrel that goes clink? That's a language everybody understands. So do the girls in the bars around Port Royal, or the customs official, who should really spend half a day inspecting your ship instead of saying, welcome to Port Royal, Mr. Smith. Coins do have serious problems, though. There is a hard limit on how many you can carry. Humans have a set upper carrying capacity. Above that, you need a horse or a wagon. Coins take up a lot of space. Or you need to switch to notes and credit and convert your coins to them. That seems obvious, but for a shopkeeper who is taking transactions, mostly in small coins like shillings, huge sacks of heavy coins could build up. Now, Imagine he needs to make a large payment for the next day's goods. He needs to do it in the afternoon, but it will be after the bank closes. If he deposits his coins in the bank early, he won't have the money for his large order in the evening. Ideally, he will want to either deposit his coins at the bank early and receive notes for his evening purchase, or he will want to have an account, which he can charge to his supplier. But his bank might not be willing to do a straight swap until the money has been counted and credited in the accounts. Even if the bank issued notes, they were local bank notes. There was no guarantee other traders would accept. Yes, that's right. It was only in 1844 that the Bank of England was given the legal monopoly to issue English banknotes. New banks would not be allowed to from that Pre-existing banks already retained the power, but they lost it when they closed or merged, which meant for long periods private banks could still issue banknotes. In fact, the last privately issued banknote in England was in 1921 in Somerset. To say this made banks and banknotes risky is a massive understatement. Could you trust the local bank to only print the right number of notes? How did they prevent fraud or inflation? The answer lay in equivalence. 
the note should be converted to the face value of pound coins, which were in gold. Naturally, this limited the ability to print excessive currency. Limited, but not stopped. We will dive into this more in future minisodes when we talk about, well, fractional reserve lending and bank runs. Our shopkeeper could ask the supplier to just invoice him for the goods. But if they didn't know him well or needed immediate cash flow, it might be problematic. These are problems of cash flow and liquidity, not problems with any trader's actual worth. Our trader was worth the amount he wanted to buy and was good for the amount. He just couldn't access the liquid funds at the right time. Hence, reputation and credit were vital. IOUs were taken very seriously and were a form of contract. For most shops though, and the bulk of the population, everything was done with coins or on account. The shopkeeper didn't even have a cash register. Purses, neck purses, bowls or cash tins were all used. The most important item in a shopkeeper's arsenal was his notebook and pencil in his apron pouch. To prevent theft, most coins were kept out the back of the shop with just a working float and the notebook in front. Victorian Britain was hugely dependent on the vast explosion of small shops. Butchers, bakers and dressmakers were joined by chemists, art suppliers, stationery shops, tobacconists, perfumers, sporting goods, much more. They needed staff who could cope with the demands of customers and effectively handle the money. These were not positions for the illiterate. As Emily Faithful said in her book, Choice of a Business for Girls, in 1864, quote, The power of making out a bill with great rapidity and perfect accuracy is also necessary, and this is the point where women usually fail. A poor, half-educated girl keeps a customer waiting while she is trying to add up the bill, or perhaps does it wrong, and in either case, excites reasonable displeasure. This displeasure is expressed to the master of the establishment, who dismisses the offender and engages a well-educated man in her place. He pays him double wages, but then feels sure that his assistant will not drive away customers by his incapacity. Parents who intend their daughters to become saleswomen should take care they are thoroughly proficient in arithmetic, end quote. Shop owners exploited these staff. Fines and deductions from wages were common. Mistakes in a bill for a customer could result in the shop worker being fined up to three pence. Abuse and low pay was rife. Numeracy didn't guarantee better treatment in Victorian Britain. Even going on a major shopping spree needed planning. A lady might want to visit one of these new shopping parades, all sorts of things, but carrying a lot of coins would be a huge problem. They depended on accounts and bills being sent back to their home or the hotel room of their husband if they were up from the country. Running out of cash was a problem. It's not as if a thirsty lady would be given a drink for free by a street vendor if she'd run out of coins. Market stalls and many other places didn't give credit or send invoices. They wanted cash in hand, and after all, there's only so much a lady can stuff in a delicately sewn purse. Still, if a Victorian lady 
swung her rectangle bag at you, with her coin purse inside, it must have been like being hit by a sock with a pool ball in it. Being handbagged back then really meant something. Dealing mainly in cash acted as a break on many kinds of economic activity. Things had to be done more slowly. Instant gratification was much harder. Since you needed cash for pretty much everything, you had to plan trips more carefully. It was one thing to run out of coins on your local high street, and you just went home and waited till tomorrow. It was much more difficult when you might be going from, say, Liverpool to Madras via Cape Town. You had to think very, very carefully about how to organise money. For the rich, that meant banks, bankers' drafts, letters of credit, and other financial instruments. For the poor, it could mean a heavy carpet bag that you used as a pillow to make sure no one touched your cash when you slept. Okay, time for me to go. I feel I should be playing that famous Pink Floyd song as an outro, but firstly we aren't done with money by a long way, and of course, in bitter irony, I can't actually afford the law, the royalty fees it would take to play it. Okay, February we'll see a full episode on Darwin, and future minisodes will carry on with the exciting world of Victorian money. Take care, my friends, and bye for now. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes. Or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria Podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.